Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marks and Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, me, you idiot. Welcome, everybody, to the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is episode number 217. And my guest is author J.K. Allen. She's the author of the of the brand new book, Half Blood Alliance. Um, J.K., who who you know she she goes, her author name is J.K. Allen. I've been given permission to call her Julia, which I appreciate. Uh, Julia received her B.A. in creative writing, and in English from uh, from Michigan State University. Uh, and along with that, along with her creative writing uh, background, academically speaking. Uh, she's, she's an author. She was previously the president and head editor of an indie press. And when she's not writing, you can find her painting, drawing, or lost in another world between the pages of a book. So I'm very excited to talk to my guest today. Again, J.K. Allen, but I call her Julia. How you doing, Julia? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. It is absolutely my pleasure. So how's uh, right now? It's a uh, it's Saturday morning. Uh, I, I feel like before we get started talking, it's it's it's. We, we should address at least a little bit. We, we we're still, uh, it's we're still in a in a in a in a pandemic and a quarantine, and mm-hmm. uh, I figure we should at least mention that. So how 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 are you doing with 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 that business? Um, well, I'm in Michigan. I think we're we're doing okay. Uh, some people here don't like to wear masks. I am not one of those people. Uh, I like my mask, uh, and I like to try to do my part to protect other people from my germs as well. You know, so (laughs) Um, isn't that funny? Yeah. So it's so we we're in like uh, this is like I think we're officially in our sixth month of uh, of the uh, pandemic and the and, and the quarantine. And and I recorded an episode I think back in March and and back in March I think I recorded an episode maybe when we were like a week into it. And at that time, I was just sort of, you know, I don't know. I, I'm sure like everybody else, it was like, okay, hopefully this will, you know, worst case scenario, maybe uh, maybe we have to stay home for a month and then we'll see what happens. And now, you know, six months later, not, not only are we still going, but now there's there's a whole unfortunate cultural or political whatever divide of like whether or not you should wear a mask. And it's like, how can that possibly be? why would anybody right what you know well it's interesting for me um coming from an asian cultural background Mm -hmm. because asians are more like community minded um rather than americans are very much individually minded Mm -hmm. like when we talk about our individual rights and our freedoms and everything like that it's very much my rights and it comes from me and then goes out towards other people whereas in the asian culture it's you think about everyone and then it comes in towards yourself but you think of the majority Mm -hmm. first so you know if you go even if you have a cold or a little sniffle or allergies like you'll see they wear masks in asia because just on the off chance that they do have you know a virus or bacteria they don't want to spread it to anyone else so they'll just throw on a mask and it's become kind of this um political statement and it's very interesting for me because um you know like i said you know coming from a different viewpoint Mm -hmm. of you know for me it's just like oh it's just at the worst case scenario is i'm i look a little silly 
yeah. you know, but I, I might be helping other people. So that's why I do it, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's like, you know, with this big debate of should you, shouldn't you, it's like, for me, it's just like, oh, then the, you know, the worst that, that happens is I'm, I'm wearing a mask and I'm a little discomforted, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's interesting that, you know, the difference between cultures, uh, that this is particularly with, with Asian culture that you mentioned that, uh, you know, wearing the masks, uh, I mean, what was, was it, was a thing even before, uh, even before, you know, the, you know, COVID-19. And so I'm, right. I'm here in Las Vegas. And so, you know, of course there's, uh, a lot of tourists, uh, in Las Vegas. And so, um, uh, and so in particular, like, you know, for, for years, even before, you know, again, COVID-19, it wasn't unusual that I, that I might see, uh, you know, uh, 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 an Asian person walking around mm-hmm. wearing, wearing a mask. And and again, if there was no there was no pandemic. There was nothing going around. Um, but I, but I did recognize that you know you know that, that that culturally, for whatever reason, maybe they were sick. Maybe somebody in their family was sick. Or right. I thought maybe they're just like you know, there's a lot of tourists here. I don't know where they've been. So let me just protect right. myself. Right. And to me, it's like it's the best thing ever because I'm like I can go to the grocery store in sweatpants and nobody knows it's me. <laughs> like my own cousin was at the store and he's like texted me later like were you at the store i think i saw you but he didn't know because i had my sweatpants on and my mask you know i can get away with anything uh and, and especially if uh you know if you, if you i can put my mask on and uh, even some sunglasses and then if i right. really, uh, you know it's funny though every time uh every time like if i you know and, and i really and i and i i go out sparingly but like if i'm like running if i'm going to the post office uh, or if there's just uh, something that I need to pick up at the grocery store or something mm-hmm. like that. Every time I like I get there and I park and then you know, before I get out of my car, I put my mask on and then my glasses. I, I always feel like I'm getting ready to rob a bank. Like I feel like I'm preparing for a heist. Right, right. It's like you're putting on this like persona uh-huh. and you can just like, I can do whatever I want, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> it's like I got my mask on, get out of the car. Okay, don't blow this. Get the money. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like I'm in Ocean's Eleven or something. Right, but I think that's that's a writer's mind right there. I I, I was thinking that very very thing, just like without even meaning to, I put myself into this uh, into this bank heist thriller. Just and really, I'm just picking up milk or something. Right. <laughs> so okay, so so you talked a little bit about you. So you talked about living in Michigan. Is that where you grew up? Um, so I was born here. My dad was in, in the army. I'm an army brat. Um, so I was born here when he was on leave uh, in his hometown. And then we lived abroad. And then we lived in Maryland for a while. And when he retired from the army after he served his 20 years, we went back to his hometown. So it's kind of um, where I spent the longest time. So I do consider it like home. Okay. And uh, so, so you said you lived abroad. Did you live in multiple countries, or was it basically just one one spot? Uh, we were in Okinawa for a couple of years, um, and then we were in Maryland. And my dad kind of kept us in Maryland while he traveled to other areas because he'd only be stationed for like a year or so. So, no point in uprooting the whole family. Um, so I have a little bit of a different experience than most army brats who move every one to two years and don't really ha- and don't really have that planted feeling i do sure that makes sense uh uh, forgive me if this is a dumb question but i think if i'm not mistaken uh okinawa was the the setting for karate kid part two does that sound oh i think so because i think the the sensei um was supposed to be from that area yeah if i remember correctly yeah yeah, mr miyagi because when i was a kid um 
So I was like, I love the Karate Kid. I, I really love Karate Kid Part 2. I have no idea how people feel about Karate Kid Part 2, whatever, 30 years later. <laughs> um, but I always loved it. And I think because I, because uh, in the movie it felt like a... Uh, well, I, I think as Mr. Miyagi was sort of like a... It, it, it felt like a very like mythical character. Mm. So, mm-hmm. so I think as a kid I just assumed that this place, Okinawa, was like... I, was like uh, you know akin to like Lord of the Rings. It's like some like magical made up place. Right. So so I think when I found out that it was an actual, an actual part of the world, it was it was very exciting. It was like finding out that like Gotham City was real or something. Narnia like exists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so okay. So 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 can you attest? Is it is it a, is it a, a magical a magical uh, place with uh, with fairies and superpowers and? Well. Um... I cannot attest. I was actually yeah. two or three when we left. Okay. So, so I was but, so baby it's possible when I was is what you're there. saying. It's possible. Yeah. I have some, uh, most of my memories are pictures of okay. like me at the botanical gardens or me at a beach, you know, like the, <laughs> <laughs> I don't really remember. Well, I remember being at the beach and being scared of the waves. I didn't understand why they were coming at me. <laughs> but, um, like I said, I was like a toddler at the okay. time. Um, okay. So, but you know, we lived on base, so it's like being in a little part of America, you know, in another country. Because sure. everyone's always like, "Oh, did you speak Japanese then?" And I was like, "One, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we were on army base the whole time, you know, and uh, you know, um, I am culturally Korean, so <laughs> uh, I didn't have the extra incentive to learn. But um, beautiful place from the pictures." Okay. Okay, and again, you know, my main takeaway is it's entirely possible that it is a, a magical land filled with superpowers and fairies. Oh, I'm sure there's little forest creatures, uh, yeah. even though it's an island. You yeah. know, there's forest creatures, you know. Outstanding. That's <laughs> little spirits and yeah. stuff mm-hmm. floating around. That's, sure. out, that's outstanding. And and uh, and so so we'll, we'll move on from this because yeah, I want to I want to leave. I, I want to leave at the point where it's possible. That's all I needed to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, and so so my next uh, next I'm gonna find out where uh, Gotham City is, and then uh, the Metropolis, and then uh, mm-hmm. Narnia. Um, so so as a kid, so okay, so so you don't really have uh, memories beyond say, like the pictures that uh, that you kind of looked at uh, from Okinawa, uh, Maryland. Do you have more mer- memories about living in Maryland? Uh, I loved it, and you know that could that could be the the rosy colored glasses of childhood, um, but you know you're living on. It's really interesting. You're living on a base with a lot of other kids that are just like you, mm-hmm. whether it's um, biracial kids, other you know minority children. Um, it's it's so many different people all mixed into one group, um, so. I, I, I never felt different until I moved to Michigan. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, it's really, yeah. Okay, can you uh, talk about that uh, a little bit if you like? Because I, I know that, so uh, uh, in, in your books, and, and I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself, but um, but I kind of get to get to this now because you mentioned something interesting about not feeling different until you moved to, to Michigan. So so in your book, um, one of the one of the themes that you come back to often is is identity. And mm-hmm. so it feels like perhaps that, you know, part of the reason that that's a, that's a theme that you're sort of uh, inspired to write about is perhaps maybe because of uh, because of your experience growing up on bases and then ending up on, on in, um, in Michigan. If that's the case, uh, speak to that. And if, if I'm completely wrong, go ahead and tell me why. Oh, definitely. Um, 
One of the reasons why I talk about identity so much is like I, I always, uh, you know, joke around and call myself a halfie. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it is the experience of halfies is like you kind of like you don't belong to either world. You know, mm-hmm. like I was never white to the white kids, but to the Asian kids, I wasn't Asian really either. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like this weird dynamic that kind of settles around you of um, people arguing with you about what your identity is. So identity became a very important theme to me in my life and therefore in my writing I like to explore it as well whether it's simply like uh, my first trilogy is the Angelborn series Mm -hmm. Um, so that's Angelborn, Heaven, Fire, and Demonkind and she finds out she's an angel and the theme is more of like finding how to believe in yourself uh, you know, because she's thrown into this world that she didn't know about, and she's got these powers she didn't know about. They just got activated, and so it's it's that theme of identity, as in um, figuring out who she is, who she wants to be, uh, doing the right thing, not the easy thing, but also believing in in who she is as well. Um, so that definitely, I I think, comes from my experience growing up of being kind of caught in the middle of these two worlds, especially like uh, as a second generation, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's like you have your culture at home and then you go to school and you're expected to act a completely different way and think a completely different way. And then you go home and, you know, it's like, why are you being like this? <laughs> you know, why are you acting like an American? You know, so it's this really interesting push and pull that, you know, that kind of formed my thoughts on you know this kind of stuff of like who who am I and how do I define myself and why that's so important. Yeah, no, that's no, that's fascinating. When you um, do you have so uh, do you have like a if, if not a first memory then maybe just like an early memory of 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 the first time that you that you sort of experienced that feeling whether it was going to school for the first time in Michigan or, or, or whatever it was the first time that you sort of recognize this feeling of like, Oh, I, I feel different all of a sudden, but I've never felt this before. What, well, you know, where's this coming I'll from? I'll tell you two instances. Um, one instance is the, the first time I realized, um, how much my culture and my Korean identity meant to me. I was like four years old and, uh, Koreans eat a lot of kimchi. Uh, I don't know if you know what kimchi is, but no. it's very spicy. Um, so it's it's like a it's it's a vegetable that's fermented, so kind of like how we would pickle a cucumber. Okay. But instead of with vinegar, it's with hot peppers. So it's this very spicy um, dish. But it's it's like you know Koreans eat kimchi. Like there's no <laughs> there's no questioning that. Like so, um, my mom would like rinse it off in water and give it to me. But it gave me a stomach ache because you know I have very sensitive stomach and it was spicy and I was like a little kid. So I was. Um, complaining to her like oh mom my stomach hurts and she's like then stop eating kimchi and I was like but I'm Korean I have to eat kimchi <laughs> and that was kind of one of my first memories of being like yes this is like me and my identity <laughs> this is a part of me it's this kimchi you know <laughs> um, another time um, where I felt kind of that otherness was um, actually right before I moved to Michigan, I went to school and I went to the base school. So it was an international school. So there's, like I said, tons of other, you know, people around of all, all different, um, kinds of people. And 
this little um, white kid said something to me, and I didn't even understand that it was racist until the bus driver yelled at him. Mm -hmm. But, you know, all of the army dads came up, and they're, you know, my dad was an MP, and he was like, what'd you say, boy? You know, like, you don't <laughs> talk like that to other people. So it was a very, like, protective feeling at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, as being othered and so it's like no this is wrong behavior he got chastised um, but it really wasn't until I got to Michigan and then I was like everyone's white <laughs> you know I mean I'm in a small it's a it's a small city um, like my school um, has a bigger student population uh, than the the city I live in so you know <laughs> uh, it's just just like there was like maybe like four other Asians in my school and most of them were adopted and it was just this completely different experience where I was like, wow, I'm really different than everyone else here. Um, and, and you know, it's funny. So, so you, so, so you, uh, uh, you mentioned the, the, the boy who, uh, he, he said something that, you know, you, like you recognized from the adults around you, he had said something offensive or racist in this case, but you know, if the adults hadn't uh, responded, you, you probably, wouldn't you probably wouldn't have realized he was saying something inappropriate um and, and so i i always find i always think it's really interesting about um, about kids uh, well, well kids and adults in general but the idea whether it's something like offensive or racist or something that maybe is like overtly sexual that uh, that an adult wants to like shield a kid from um but like i think as, as adults it's very easy to, to to forget or take for granted that the kids really have no idea what's going on and that, uh, that, you know, like, you know, until, uh, until adults react in a certain way, we didn't realize something bad happened or something was, uh, offensive or something was, you know, um, I guess racist. But so like, like when I was a kid, uh, there was, so it's technically an experience that I had, but really I remember the experience only because of, of the, I, I because of the story that my mom told me about it. Like I remember uh, the uh -huh. atmosphere, but I don't remember the bad part except for my mom telling it to me. Uh, so I was in kindergarten, and uh, so, so so like my mom's side of the family is is Mexican. My dad's side of the family is as Creole, and so um, uh, and, and so culturally, I, I think because I grew up in Southern California, which uh, of course there's mm -hmm. a, a large population, it's a large you know, Hispanic and you know, Latino population. So um, I think I was kind of like na naturally both drawn to that, and also sort of that became a big part of my identity in large part because you know uh, I I just looked more. Mexican than anything else, particularly in, in Southern California. And then my next door neighbors um, were black. And so the little girl, you know, she was my best friend until, you know, they, they, they moved to, to Seattle. Um, uh -huh. And so, so she and I were in the same kindergarten class and it was around uh, Thanksgiving. And so, uh, so, so the teacher was having us, it was just, you know, fun little uh, uh, kindergarten assignment. We were just drawing, do, doing drawings of pilgrims. And I think the teacher mm. were going to put them up around the room or whatever. And and so my mom was helping out. She happened to be helping out that day in, in the class, which is why she was there for for the, for, for this moment. And again, um, I only know this part of the memory because my mom told me because as a kid, didn't even resonate in, in my brain. Uh, so the kindergarten teacher um, was was ex was describing the assignments. You know, we're going to draw these pilgrims, and you know, we've got some crayons. We're going to color them. Um, and so, and so, you know, when, so when you color the, when you color the pilgrims, um, you know, don't, uh, don't color them like Martin's color and don't color them like <gasps> Tiffany's color. 
Oh. You know, color them like, you know, yeah. whatever, whoever that may be like in the room was. And again, and you know, of course, I hear that story. I tell that story. You hear that story. It's horribly offensive. But as a kid, oh. didn't even occur to me for that to, to, I literally don't have, I remember the day, I remember the assignment, I don't remember that instruction, but my mom was there, right. and, you know, she was furious, I don't remember if she said anything to the teacher, uh, but I know that she told my friend's mom after the fact, and maybe they said something, I, in fact, I'm sure. They maybe they said something together, said something yeah. Later, you well, know. I, when that happened on the bus, um, I, I knew it was mean, I mm-hmm. could tell from his tone, he was yelling, he was in my face, sure. you know. I knew he was trying to bully me, but um, yeah, like finding out finding out why yeah. later was like that. That was just like, oh wow, that was hurtful, you yeah. know. Like I remember being like, wow, someone doesn't like me just because of the way I look or mm-hmm. who my mom is, or like how how do you base your judgment of like what a, a person is or what type of person someone yeah. is just by you know their looks or their race uh, I, it was such a uh, hurtful and just weird Absolutely. thought to me that i was just like how can people think that you know that i'm something else Absolutely. you know and especially when you know in terms of like say like identity and racism and especially because he was a kid like mm-hmm. like i don't even know who this kid was and and i i like i know that whatever these ideas that he was projecting onto you in an aggressive bullying way came from an adult, maybe a parent, uh, just somebody who either said these things around him and he heard it and he picked it up or they, or they just outright, you know, fed him these ideas because mm-hmm. he didn't, because he didn't create them himself. Right. And it's just, and it's, it's always so sad. But like when you, when you see that, like, you know, that, just unfortunately, you know, like like if kids are, are left to their own devices, because again, you know, like uh, I, they'll be friends with anyone. Yeah, yeah, and it just in, in, in the corniest possible way, but it's true. Like again, my as a kid, my my next door neighbor, you know, my, you know, my best friend was black, and in the, in the corniest sort of colorless way, it never even occurred to me until you know whatever until somebody pointed it out, I guess, and, and that's how it goes with kids. So like, so if a kid is not only bullying but using just really uh, offensive racist rhetoric it's like you mm-hmm. know that unfortunately somebody taught that to them and, and unless somebody steers them a different way they're going to grow over that and it's going to get baked in and then hopefully they don't they don't yeah have and in my grade school in my class like i said it was an international school the latinas were the cool kids you know they all yeah. wore their big brothers like button-up shirts with just the top button buttoned and <laughs> yes. i was like oh i wish i had like someone's flannel to steal and be that cool you know what i mean like <laughs> they were the kids i wanted to be friends with <laughs> you know so it's just like yeah kids will be friends with with it with anyone yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's so yeah it's so fascinating again i i I spend so much time, particularly as, as a writer, thinking about, you know, uh, thinking about the things that sort of um, uh, affect the stories that I write or mm-hmm. or affect the stories that other people write. Or, or if I'm watching a TV show or reading a book or watching a movie, uh, particularly if it's just if, if there if there's really strong themes that I could tell or important that, that, that were important to, you know, a particular writer. Um, one of the first things that I find myself thinking about is like, you know, like what was their experience? What was their life? Where did they grow up? Who did they know? What what affected them? What ultimately led them to, to you know, uh, to, to to tell these stories? And I, and I and I guess one of the things that I also think about 
and uh, and it's such a simple thing, but for me, it, it's it's I I, um, I know it affects me as a creative person mm-hmm. um, as I think about the things that entertain me as a kid. Like when I was a kid, you know, I loved I loved comic books, I loved superheroes. Uh, you know, like where, like, like, like you and I can see each other on camera right now. Of course, it's a podcast, mm-hmm. but it's an audio medium. Uh, but, but like you can see behind me, I have several, I have pictures of Superman and, and Batman yeah. and, and I've got superheroes all over my room. So, so even if you didn't, uh, know it in my writing, like right away, it's like, you know, that these are things that I loved. Uh, I love movies and television and, um, professional wrestling. So now like when I'm, when, when I write stories, uh, I, I don't actively like reach back and draw on the things that. That, that I loved or was entertained by, mm-hmm. but I can still see their influence in, in the stories right. that I like to tell. So, so when you were a kid, what were the things that that um, that that you were most entertained by? So I was a little bit of a strange kid um, with a tiger mom, of course. <laughs> uh, so education was very, very important in my family, and. Um, so I wasn't the play outside all night or all day kid. I was the read a book a day kid. <laughs> I literally like, uh, you know how they had the scholastic, uh, they had the, the book events where it was like a competition who could read the most books. You'd win a personal pan pizza and a little button that says scholastic you know, reader. And I won it every year, you know, kids would come in and be like, Oh, I read five books this month. How many did you read? And I would be like 32. And they would be like, what? And like, <laughs> they, they didn't, they couldn't comprehend that. Like I literally would go home and just read a book, um, and spend a lot of my time that way. Um, and, and I, so I've always been a reader. Um, it's always been something I valued. I, they were like my friends, you know what I mean? Like I, I would get lost in the world, like I say in my bio, you know, just like you get to explore other places. You get to see what it's like to live other people's lives, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like I got to, you know, um, I always say if you want to be empathetic, um, read a book and just see something from someone else's perspective. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so I feel like. I had, you know, such a rich childhood just by, like, experiencing so many different stories. Um, and uh, I had, I I was uh, kind of bad for a while because I would read a book, even if I hated it, I would have to finish it. <laughs> That's part of the Tiger Mom perfectionist stuff. Like, you have to be perfect and finish what you start and do everything, you know, perfect from beginning to end. But now I'm like, if I don't like a book, I'll put it down because I'm like, I have 100,000 books in my house, you know, and (laughs) more on my phone and a a to be read list longer than I am, you know, so (laughs) there's there's not enough time in the world for books that aren't for me, not bad books, just books that aren't for me. Yeah. Um, But I remember the first time I read a book and I just I did not like it at all and I would just went to my mom and I was like mom do I have permission to not finish this book it is so bad <laughs> it was like my dad had picked it up at a garage sale and it was someone's like self-published fantasy <laughs> book <laughs> and it was just not my cup of tea at all <laughs> and I was just like I read the first chapter and I was like mom it is so outlandish I just like can't finish it I can't do it and I was like freaking out because <laughs> I never not finished a book before and I was just like it would be like more you know torture for me to read than to not read so I just had to ask for permission so finally she was like yeah okay and I was like oh my god <laughs> like you know the relief of <laughs> I felt was monumental you know oh my god that's hilarious 
so as as a kid, as I, if you're reading, you know, 30, 32 books a month, um, I, I, were you just like reading just like every possible genre or was there a particular genre that you were drawn to? Um, I've always loved magic. Um, so of course I'm a big fantasy fan. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, uh, no, I read every genre. I remember being in, uh, like in elementary school and I like, like in fifth grade, I read little women and cried my eyes out, you know, (laughs) and then in middle school I discovered Vonnegut. So I read all of his books and then I started to get into King and then, you know, then it was like, that was also when all of the Goosebumps books were coming out in Fear Street and so we would buy like a bunch of horror books as well um, and I, I loved those and um, then I I would also read like mystery books um, and, and as a writer I think it's very important to read widely because like what no, regardless of what genre you write um, you can incorporate and learn different things from different genres. So, like, I write young adult urban fantasy primarily, mm-hmm. but, like, I have relationships in it. So I do read romances to see how they do the will-they-won't-they they trope mm-hmm. or to see how how they develop the relationships and, like, what I like about how they develop the relationships and what I don't like and don't want to do in my books, right? Mm-hmm. Like, some of the tropes, I'm like, the bully trope, I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> bullies are not to be dated (laughs) you know we we don't encourage that behavior um but like and then like fantasy you can learn about world building and stuff like that um Mm -hmm. you know mystery you can learn about like how to you know foreshadow and like drop those clues without giving it away so it is really important to read widely and i think i i do appreciate the fact that when i was a kid i would literally just devour whatever book i could um and not be picky about like oh it has to be this kind of book no absolutely yeah it's, it's so funny you mentioned that because again yeah i think reading uh reading uh, a lot and reading mm-hmm. widely is fantastic advice for for anybody who's interested in uh, in being a writer um and again i mean like, e- even if you picked one genre just read a lot of books because the more the more books you read, the more author voices you encounter, the more writing you encounter. Right. It, it just, it, it's going to help. I mean, it, it's not just about, I mean, you'll, you'll learn from it. Uh, like one of the things that I found, I, I was a late bloomer in terms of um, reading books. Like I, as a kid, I, I loved comic books, but, mm-hmm. uh, but a big part of it was um, where the pictures, you know, I, and later in life, I, I came to understand that I'm a visual learner, but as a kid, I didn't know that. I just knew that um, I loved comic books i love the images i love drawing pictures um the majority of stories that i ingested as a kid came from television and movies but even as a writer now i rec- I, I, I still recognize the the just the common ground of of, of storytelling whether it's a, a book a, a television show a movie like i there's there's a lot of just the storytelling there's, there's a lot of common ground that that informs sort of how i how i write mm-hmm. but uh i was about 18 when i really truly genuinely discovered a love for reading mm-hmm. um and and so i found that you know the, the the more that i read over the years the more books that i read and then it relatively simultaneously like i was trying to figure out how to be a writer and of course those early attempts were abysmal it was it took several years and then eventually like meeting the right teacher who was able to you know just, find that magic key absolutely just, yeah just and, and it's it always and in my case it was so simple but just unlock just unlocking just the right lessons just giving me just the right perspective and then i realized oh mm-hmm. okay yeah i can do that whatever you know 
Mm-hmm. And so, so I found that like the more that I read, that when I started writing, as as my writing started to evolve and improve, um, I would just I would see I, I would see stories, uh, like I, I would see them in paragraphs and I would see them in chapters and and like stories would they would almost structure themselves both in the terms of the writing and the paragraphs and the sentences and the dialogue. And, and I didn't have to think about it. It was just like, mm-hmm. it was, it became hardwired. And I, and I recognized that that wasn't because I had, you know, it, it wasn't specifically because I like learned this specific skill. It was just from reading a lot. And, Cause the, the more I read right. like, those books, just in, it, it, was, it just sort of like, it was like downloading just blueprints of like what books look like, what good stories look like, what good st- structure mm-hmm. looks like. And then when I was telling a story, it would, it, it would, they would almost start to structure themselves. And that just came from, from reading a lot. So that's, yeah, I, I would, I would double down on, on your advice. I think that's fantastic. Read a light, read a lot, but also in terms of, of, of genre. So, you know, like my books are you know, primarily, you know, like my first book is, is a horror novel. My next three was, it was a vampire trilogy. Oh, okay. uh, my my fifth book is a short story collection, but there's a lot of like horror and fantasy in there. The the the, pri- the primary story it's a it's it's a it's, it's it's about a character named Dolph the Unicorn Killer, and he's a subversive superhero who who kills unicorns because you know, because he he's the only person in the world for he's the only person in the world that can, can see unicorns, and he's convinced that they're evil, so he thinks he's doing the world <laughs> service by killing unicorns. Mm-hmm. So for anybody who's read my stories. They, they might be surprised if they looked at my bookshelf. Um, basically, to, to what you're saying is that they might expect to see, you know, maybe like a lot of, uh, I don't know, a lot of fantasy or a lot of horror or a lot of mm. uh, Stephen King, which, you know, you'll see you'll see that stuff on there. But then you're also going to see like a lot of, you know, literary fiction. You're going to see a lot of right. you know, nonfiction stuff. You're going to see, you know, uh, books, you know, like one of my very favorite writers is Tim O'Brien, and he primarily writes about... <sighs> Yeah. Know, like like Vietnam and stuff. Yeah. And, and like his... I read one of his books in high school and my dad was actually in the Vietnam War. Yeah. Most one of the most moving but like hard to read books Absolutely. I've ever read. If I had I, to guess it was so prob- personal to me. It's prob- yeah. Probably the things they carry, because I think that's Yes. It the, was. Yeah. yeah. yeah that, and that... I was, it was so beautiful but haunting. Absolutely. I could like see my dad in that book and I was just like 100 percent because because like it's so because yeah because tim o'brien you know he's his like his background was he like he was he was in the vietnam war before he got drafted he was a college student studying journalism and Mm -hmm. he was hoping not to go to war Um, right and so so now so you get this perspective of essentially a writer and a storyteller studying journalism who you now put him in this place and so so you know, yeah. it, it makes sense that that this person could write about this in a way that's so engaging, so real, so mm-hmm. haunting. And I'm not somebody who's drawn to to war stories, but his books, particularly his books that he that he writes about Vietnam, like I, there, I, I, he's at least three that I could think of because he's got the things they carry. He's got a memoir called uh, Oh goodness, some oh. I feel terrible. He's not listening, but I feel terrible that the, the name of his memoir escapes me. <laughs> but um, something like uh, you know, if if they, some, uh, you know, I'm not even trying to guess. I'm gonna I'm gonna ruin it. But anyway, um, you know, so he's got Tim O'Brien. So he's writing about Vietnam. You're gonna, say, you know, I've got uh, you know, nonfiction stuff, a lot of literary fiction, and uh, and for me, it wasn't by design. Like I wasn't you know, necessarily 
thinking to myself, let me diversify the, the books that I'm reading. It's just, you know, I, I find all these things, all these different books interesting. But to your point, you know, when I'm writing, uh, e- even if if I'm, even if I'm writing, you know, you know, uh, like my first book against it's a horror novel uh, at the center of it. It's, it's a cult of cannibals. And, you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily you wouldn't you probably wouldn't immediately see the influence of, uh, say, Tim or Brian on that book. But when I read it. I see his influence all over that book because, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just because uh, I love his writing, I love his storytelling. Um, and even though, like, I'm not writing about, say, the Vietnam War, just just uh, engaging with all these different authors, different genres, different voices, it's hugely in- influential. So I totally agree with that. And again, um, just well, you find your advice. voice by listening to other people's voices yes. is what I find. The more you read, then you'll be like, oh, let me try this style or let me try that style. And you learn very quickly, like what works for you and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that you're copying. It's yeah. just that, you know, you're adapting. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I agree with that 100 percent. So um, so so when you were talking about. uh you know, reading a lot as a kid, you know, 30 books a month, sometimes more than that, especially if uh, if there was a, you know, a, a personal pizza on the line, maybe 32 books. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so you read right. a lot of books um, and, and you read, you know, a, a varied range of, of genres of books. Uh, one of the first things that I started thinking about is uh, as part of your background, aside from being an author is you're also an editor and so mm. um and so so for me uh, I'm, I'm making connection like this makes a lot of sense that a person who read this much particularly as a kid um read all these different genres is aware like cognitive of you know of of genre and themes and tropes and characters um well, all, all these things sort of kind of make sense to me that this person might eventually find themselves um as an editor, but go 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 ahead. You're going to say something. I was going to say uh, it. Also, I was a very pedantic little brat too. You know what I mean? <laughs> like so. Okay, it's it, it comes from it comes from being a part of the second generation, right? Uh-huh. So I saw the way people treated my mom for not speaking perfect English. Okay. And my sister actually um, was a honeymoon baby. So my mom was basically still learning English as my sister was born. And so her English wasn't perfect either. And she actually didn't do the best in school. And she had to take special speech classes. And really, like, for her, grammar is, you know, not as intrinsic as it is for me. Mm-hmm. Um because by the time I came around, I had my sister to listen to and learn English from as well as my mom. So, um, but naturally, that kind of made me like a little bit, uh, you know, more of a perfectionist of my mom gets bullied and treated really badly for, for having an accent. You know, it doesn't matter if, if her English is correct or you can understand it. It would always be like, oh, I can't understand what she's saying. And, and I saw how badly she was treated. And so, like, it became this, like, precious commodity for me to have perfect English. Mm. Um, so, you know, learning grammar in school, I always paid super close attention to. And reading books, I, you know, kind of naturally would, you know, read a book and be like, oh, okay, this is how it's structured. This is, you know, you know, I, I am kind of a language person in that I'll be like, oh, I'll notice the syntax of something and mm-hmm. be like, you know, in this, in, in this language, the verb to negate, <laughs> um, 
you know, to say does not, you, you put the not after the does in this language or you put it before in another language, you know, mm -hmm. like I, I noticed those little details. And I think it's because, like I said, English, like per having perfect English became this like precious, precious thing to me that I had to do to be accepted. That's fascinating. So, so there was not only a love of reading for engaging stories, but a clear, uh, a clear fascination with 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 language and the actual actual structure of language, which again also, it sounds like not only may, like there 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 might have been a natural uh, um, a, nat a natural inclination to be interested in language, but it also sounds like it comes back to that I, that, that that theme of identity, which is sort of. Um, very central uh, central to your life where for where the identity of where how language affected uh it sounds like in this case you know the, the identity of, of of your mom you know learning uh, english as a second language then, then the identity of you recognizing mm -hmm. how people treated your mom and and you know and and that's so 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 very fascinating to me again thinking about you know these things that um these experiences that that affect us as, as kids and then, then as we get older, you, we can, we can, in some cases, we can almost draw just, just a straight line to, to you know, like the, the life we live today. In this case, you know, you know, an author, an, an editor, somebody who loves and appreciates language and is, is particular about language. Um, as far as your, as far as your work as, as a, as an editor, and and so specifically, you know, you were uh, editing, you know, editing books, right? So I think there there's a lot of people, I would even venture to say most people, don't fully uh, understand or even to say appreciate the work that, um, that, that an editor provides to her book. And I would even venture to say that many, many if not most authors don't maybe fully understand the, 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 the scope of, of, of work or, or service that an editor that, uh -huh. that an editor brings to a book and that it's 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 not just about you know typos and grammar that's part of it right but it's right it's not just that so um uh i i would love i would love to hear you talk about just uh really like the full scope of of what an editor brings to to a book and and, and the process of of helping to help because because they're not writing the book but you know, like a good editor, they help shape it. They're, they're yeah, a big part of it. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. Sure. So first of all, um, when you talk about editing, there's a couple different types of editing, and this is what I learned when I got to college. So I was really lucky. I went to MSU, Michigan State University, and I was so fortunate because I was an English major, and I just really wanted, for the first time in my life, to have a job that like had to do with what I was learning. Yeah. So I was so fortunate to get a job at the Writing Center, and it just was amazing because the way the Writing Center works is first it taught me how important uh, the, the writer's authentic and original voice is. Mm -hmm. And that's so important, especially for authors of color. We want, as editors in the industry, stereotypically, we want to whitewash and make proper and formal English, uh -huh. you know thing so um, for authors of color it can be really hard for them to keep their authentic voice or you'll see an editor who's like well I'm gonna edit this to be like the you know the prime example of a sentence and so they'll they'll change around the syntax and they'll change around phrases and they'll take out words and make it you know concise and you know quick and snappy but you know maybe maybe they write more like um, 
you know, Tolkien, where they have more complex structure mm -hmm. to their sentence and more commas and more phrases and, you know, more descriptions. So you, you want to keep the authentic voice of the writer because it's not your story, ultimately, in the end. It's not my story, so I'm not going to write it like me, right? Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that there's the different types of, so there's developmental editing, there's um, line or copy editing, and then there's proofreading. Mm -hmm. So most people automatically think of proofreading, of finding those typos, fixing the grammar, fixing the spelling, but editors do so much more, like you said. So developmental editors are gonna focus on like the more holistic, the more big item stuff. So story structure, like, are you hitting all the right beats? How's your pacing? Is there a saggy middle? You know, um, they're going to pick up on character development. Like, uh, does your character evolve from the beginning to the end mm -hmm. in the series or in this particular book? Or um, do you have a ton of this character, but the, the like, where is Bob? who was in uh -huh. chapter two, but, you know, Bob hasn't been around for three chapters and all of a sudden we need him again, you know? Uh -huh. So uh, they're going to look at characters. They're going to look at theme. They're going to look at everything. Uh, but editors are even helpful um, for research. Like, I don't know. I'm really lucky in that I just know a bunch of random facts. So I'll be like reading a story and be like, oh, this isn't realistic. Like police have to Mirandize you before <laughs> before they arrest you and charge you with something. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Like, so like, you know, there's those missing things where it's like, hmm, I don't think a tornado quite works like that. Like, let's work on that. Or wait, you watched a movie about how sanatoriums were in the 70s, but that's not how psychiatric hospitals work nowadays, so we need to fix these facts. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, so there's locked wards, there's this and that. And so, like, we can help catch those uh, gaps, those plot holes, basically, uh -huh. where it's like, okay, you have somebody walk into a mental health uh, institution and there's no locked doors there's no security there's no you know this and that and it's just like we need to pause we need to rethink and fix this plot hole um so editors do everything from like the big how do we arrange these chapters mm -hmm. in what order does everything come in how's the pacing how's the characters to the little this needs a comma you need the oxford comma you know <laughs> which i will oxford i will argue you need the oxford comma you know till my dying days you know so I, you know, it's funny about that. So um, uh, I, 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 I could, let me think about a year or early last year, uh, I went to a uh, it, it was basically a, a, an editor's conference mm -hmm. in, a, in Rhode Island. Uh, I'm trying to think it was it was for uh, the the. Um, the, the the group I think it's it's called Aces. It's it's the uh, association. Okay. I think it's like it's like the association of uh, the, the American Copy Editors Society. Uh. I think it is. But anyway, so it was like a it was like this weekend conference, and um and and like I do um aside from my writing, like I um I do a lot of uh, uh, technical editing. I don't necessarily do story editing, but uh, but a lot right. of what I do is is technical editing. So I went to this conference, you know, primarily just in the hopes of just, you know, I mean, the reason you go to a conference, you know, see what, learn something, what, see what the trends are, what's going on in the industry right. or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, it was hilarious. You mentioned Oxford commas. I swear, uh, every every panel, every talk, every whatever, <laughs> uh, the, the, the fastest way to, to split the room in half and start a fist fight, just reference Oxford commas. 
Right. And just you just you you just would see just a group of editors just get passionate and angry and just you know and it, and it was and well, it was, it was and by the way I'm on your side I'm on your okay, side. Okay, good. I was gonna <laughs> say I'll tell you why people argue against the Oxford comma and they don't realize people started omitting the Oxford comma because of AP, Associated Press, right? Mm. Journalists only have so many character spaces for their columns. And that comma was just like, why are we having this comma? Because we don't have space for it. But in regular writing, there is plenty of space for the Oxford comma, right? So why are we getting rid of it? It clarifies things, right? It absolutely clarifies things. It does. Things. It clarifies things greatly. And, and, and I'll admit something to you. I So, so again, today in 2020... Uh, I I am a I am a strong advocate for the Oxford comma. You and I work. We'll go out with with picket signs if we have to, and you yes. know uh, you know, uh, you know, make commas great again hats if we have to. Um, but uh, I, I I came a little bit late to the Oxford comma. You know, again I, I think by the time I got to my second book, I was all in on the Oxford comma. But my first book, um, I, I wasn't uh, I, you know I, I wasn't I wasn't big on the Oxford comma. And so, uh, like, like literally last weekend, I was, I was, I was rereading my, my first book for, for a project that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it broke my heart because I'm like rereading this book and just, you know. Seeing the missing comma. Yeah. The missing comma. Every time I saw it, just it broke. I was like, oh, come on, man. You're killing me. Right. You're killing right. me. So, so like my first book next year, it'll be uh, 10 years old. And so I, I might. I think I'll, I might very well yeah, do a new edition, you know, but really it's just so I could put the Oxford commas in there. Nobody will yeah. know that. They'll think it's just like a nice 10 year anniversary, but it's really just so I can go back in there and uh, <laughs> put the Oxford. Not only that, but just, you know, again, it was my first book and it was, you know, I published it independently. So um, I didn't have the ability to work with an editor. So it was, especially now that I do a lot of editing, just like, that's the other thing that breaks my heart is like, oh man, I can't believe how much, how many mistakes made their way through. And, and, you know, some of them aren't glaring and, you know, unless maybe like, like you or I, or somebody that has like an editor's eye would, would notice them. Oh, but oh. it kills me when I see them. So, so I, I might very well do a, a 10 year edition only just so I could, uh, only so I can soothe the, and clean it up again. Just, yeah. yeah. Soothe just, the editor and you. Oh my God. Yeah. Cause it, cause you know, I, because ever since, yeah, so basically all week now, I just find myself thinking about just, oh man, I can't believe that one mistake. I had no idea it was in there until I until right. I looked at it again. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. So so those things. Um, oh, Oxford commas. How do we get yeah, Oxford commas? We, we we advocate for for Oxford commas. Well, like I said, I was I was kind of like a pedantic little jerk um, yes. growing up, um, but. It was very different. Like, if you ever want to know uh, about more about my experience, read Mother Tongue, which is an essay by Amy Tan. Oh, absolutely. Actually, I've read that one, yeah. Her, yeah, it perfectly explains it. She's in an audience, you know, it's a very academic, formal setting, and she's using all of these, like, big words and being very articulate and being very writerly and academic. And she feels so weird, and she realizes this because her mother's also in the audience. Mm. And there's that oh my gosh, just, you know, this is not how I talk to my mom. (laughs) And so it was this mixing of audiences. Um, And, you know, like, like I said, it's just, it's just a part of that, you know, second generation experience and, and, and having a different cultural background. And, 
it's part of the reason why, like, uh, I tried to put some of this stuff into my new book that um, just came out, mm-hmm. um, Half Blood Alliance. Not only is she half angel, you know, like in the Ginny uh, was in the Angel Born series, but she's also half Korean, like I am. So I tried to put a little bit of like the culture, yeah, uh, yeah. the racism, the you know everything. Like I, it's a very dear book to me. Not because I wrote myself into it, but I wrote yeah. some of my lived experiences into Absolutely. it. And and it was kind of, it's the first time I'm really doing that um, with my writing. Uh, I've done it with my poetry. Mm-hmm. But as far as like my fiction writing, it's my first time really like exploring that like what it is to be half Korean, what it is to have lived like the experiences I have lived and, you know, how it is to, you know, make uh, Korean food for your friends and have someone make fun of it, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing, you know. <laughs> so um, this book is really, really special to me and I'm so excited about this book. That's awesome. And, and, so, it sound, and so it sounds like, um, so, so you're absolutely like exploring the, the, these ideas of, of of you know having a, a different culture or at least a different culture that represents you know uh you know half of your life so to speak um mm-hmm. and and so it sounds like you're exploring it both from a from a very uh kind of you know literal sense of like half korean but then also half angel so there's a little you know a little bit of a, of a fantasy in there mm-hmm. so uh so what why i i think what i'm thinking about is like one of my Perhaps my favorite thing about genre fiction, whether it's fantasy, horror, sci-fi, anything like that, is, is the ability to 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 uh, take a genre and to where you can explore um, you can explore you know very important or impactful cultural issues, whether it's racism, sexism, mm-hmm. classism, or whatever. And if you wanted to, I mean, you can explore those things, you know. Uh, with you know very 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 closely, right? But with the you know, you could with a layer of you know uh, you know fantasy that horror sci-fi, in between. Know, yeah. You know, it's it, it's always you know like I, like right this very second I'm thinking about uh, True Blood. Like I I, um, mm-hmm. I I never read the the Char- uh, Charlene Harris I think is her name. I, mm-hmm. I, I haven't read her books, but you know I was a fan of the show for at least for the first couple seasons when it was really good. <laughs> Um, but one of the things that I loved about what they were doing, yeah, you know, the show was set in the in, in the South specifically. It was set in a fictional city in the, in Louisiana, and um, the the themes that they were that they were touching on were very clearly they were talking about racism and specifically uh-huh. racism in the South. Right. But instead of racism, it was it's people who were and against werewolves. And, yeah, absolutely. And it was you know, and, and I love that because they could. They, that they could speak in a language, in a tone, in a way that culturally you recognize what they were doing, but they could do it with uh, with that layer of fantasy. They could, you know, in, in, instead of, you know, this white person uh, mm-hmm. being biased against this black person, it could be this person using that same tone and language against a vampire. And, and, and again, I think in a way... I think partly because I, because I did, I loved comic books and fantasy anyway. I, I love that stuff anyway. But mm. then also somebody who's, you know, socially conscious and connected to the world. And there's issues that are important to me and maybe issues that I, that I want to talk about or explore. Um, I, I, I love that I can explore these things or talk about these things. Like in my, again, in my, in my, in my unicorn killer book. Um, right. I, 
it's you know like that particular story it's 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 comedic it's satirical it's fantasy but also at its core you know i i'm, I'm also writing about uh, i'm writing about you know cultural and social stuff that that matters uh-huh. to me and uh-huh. in this case it's this guy who you know he hunts unicorns because he believes they're evil uh he meets a unicorn through convention of the story you know he can't kill this unicorn primarily because it has information that he needs so right. then, so then he he starts to get to know this unicorn and as he gets to know this unicorn he you know he he learns that you know not all unicorns are evil and and you know uh-huh. not, not all unicorns deserve to be killed and and this unicorn is teaching him lessons you know specifically uh-huh. about you know like you know why why don't you kill me and he's like well you know because I've gotten to know you and it's different and again they're having this sort of conversation that I, I can easily yeah I I mean I know people have had you know whether it's a right uh, you know in, in the most I guess in the most literal terms maybe a white person and a black person have had this conversation uh-huh. but I'm I'm having this conversation with you know uh, a unicorn killer and a unicorn and it's and it's you know and it's sort of but it's 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 I I was ve- I was very aware that I I wanted to take the opportunity to use this genre of you know fantasy and satire. But to talk about something that was very sort of you know socially uh, important to me. So again, I guess right. that's a long-winded way of saying I, I love the fact that you're doing uh, you're doing the same thing, particularly in your new book, Half Blood Alliance. Well, I'm trying not. I'm trying to make it. Um, like I said, I, I tried to make it um, reflect my lived experiences. So it's not what the book is about. The Certainly. book is about you know you know the the plot is very different and the themes are very different. But it's something that, like, as far as, like, what I've experienced, oh, everyone's nice and friendly, and then they get mad at you, and they say, like, oh, chink, go back home, or something like that. And and it's just, like, uh, you know, that's when the ugly comes out, because they want to insult you, and that's the easy target to hit, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, like, that kind of, um, you know, experience. And so it's, you know, she has... This girl that doesn't particularly like her, she's disrupting the power dynamic by moving into the Alliance house, and, you know, they're teenagers, you know, so she's, like, going for the racist, you know, hits, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, um, you know, it's a complicated, you know, subject, because you don't want to make the whole book about, you know, racism or the pain that you deal with, you know, Um, but you also don't want to sugarcoat everything and Mm -hmm. take it all out because then that wouldn't feel authentic either. Um, So it's, it's, it's this, um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, for me, it's such a, it's such a personal thing to write about. Um, And so I were, I do worry about like, how will people receive it? Sure. How will people read it and say like, oh, is this shocking to them? Is it too much? Or do they feel like it's just forced in there? You Absolutely. know, like um, I, I, I haven't written about, you know, what it feels like to be, you know, half Korean before. So I don't know how it's going to be received, but I hope they'll enjoy like the cultural stuff, the food, the details, yeah. the, like the little, you know, culture points that I'm like dropping in and, you know, yeah. just how the character is. I love this character, Brie, yeah. you know? Yeah, and, and, and you know, and my, and my instinct uh, is that just the fact that it's coming from an authentic place, a genuine place, yeah. uh, you know, people are going to connect with that. Like, that's, that's it's, I, I think that that'll resonate with, with readers in a, in a different way than if somebody was forcing it in, if it was forcing mm-hmm. it in. The fact that it's coming from a genuine place, um, 
I think you're going to be totally. I, I think you'll be totally fine in terms of how you know how readers connect with the with this new book, and also too. And I think you, if you didn't quite touch on this, uh, you were certainly uh, moving mm-hmm. in this direction. There, there's also the, um, uh, for lack of a word, I'll just call it pragmatic. The sort of pra- pragmatic uh, idea of uh, e- even if and when we do have important ideas or themes mm-hmm. that we want to talk about and that maybe we, we want to explore there's also the idea that um the great majority of people who who pick up one of our books they want to read a good story they, right they just want to be entertained by a good story mm-hmm. and and so and so you know if we're you know we might have really poignant things to say about again our beliefs on on, on culture classism racism mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. But if we're also not telling a, a, a good story, um, they might not finish the book, or, or they might just right, you know, leave a, right. a, a, a bad review on Amazon. And uh, and you know, it, it, it's all it, I I don't want to say it's unfortunate, but I always I, I always kind of feel bad when I when I recognize that that's happening in somebody's book that you know, they have these mm-hmm. big ideas, and 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 the, and, the, and they're worthwhile ideas to to explore. Mm-hmm. But they, but then they just kind of seem to have taken for granted that, you know, you're you're not telling a story, or at the very least, right, you're not telling right. an an engaging story, and you know, cause, and and you know, again, like, I uh, like like in my first book, I I um, there was I I, I explored uh, a couple of themes that were really important to me, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. one of the primary themes was uh, was was essentially the you know themed about uh, the lgbtq community mm-hmm. um and so so that was a, a huge part of part of that book um was was you know writing about and uh, reflecting on and exploring uh gay themes gay relationships mm-hmm. um but also i i, I kind of sort of knew that you know i could explore those themes but that's not really was a but th- there was a there was there was a just just in terms of narrative there was right. a, a very engaging sort of horror thriller story with a protagonist and they were going through an arc and, and, and you know, and it's, uh, and, you know, and, and I use, you know, reliable classical, you know, storytelling, uh, storytelling, you know, uh, techniques. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there, there's a great number of people who've read that book who, uh, you know, who, uh, and, you know, if, if they're kind enough to reach out to me, you know, they'll tell me how much they enjoy the story, and and it it probably doesn't even occur to them that there was these other themes right. that were important to me, right. which, which by the way is totally fine by me. You know, like like whatever whatever they were drawn to, um, but yeah, like it's so important to you know, like even when you're exploring things that are important to you, themes, whatever they happen to be. Uh, and again, this is this is really mostly for anybody who's listening, who's a writer or an aspiring writer or thinking about doing this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You absolutely cannot take for granted that. At the end of the day, you know, you you're, you're writing stories, and the person that's picking up this right. book, you know, may, maybe they're maybe they're getting on a plane for a couple of hours, maybe they're laying out by the pool, maybe they're going to the beach, and and they and they want to get lost in a story, um, and so if you're right, not, they want to be entertained, absolutely. Yeah. And if you're not entertaining them with a story, they're gonna kind of like kind of like that young version of you who asked your mom for permission, can I can I not finish this book? <laughs> Somebody's gonna not want to finish. Oh, the I book. feel so bad for whoever that author is. <laughs> oh my gosh, because I was just like, "Mom, please let me not read this," you know, like, and she, <laughs> it was just, yeah, she was. Just, I'm sure she laughed about it later because I was just like so, 
adamant and like earnest but yeah I was just like mom please don't make me read this and she's like okay read something else you know but it's just it's a funny thing to think back on but then I think oh that poor author (laughs) (laughs) I hope no one ever like does that to my book like begs their mom not to read (laughs) oh no I'm I'm, I'm telling you yeah I, I think because Thanks to uh, you know, th- thanks to Amazon, specifically Amazon reviews and good re- right. reviews. I've I've gotten um, a, a good dose of of, uh, of some of the more negative things that people think, and I, I think I don't know. I, uh, I I like to think that I well I don't know I don't know I don't know if if I'll ever get used to people saying you know really terrible things. But at the very least, it's like I don't know. I guess it's a good thing that I know. Well, your story you were just talking about sounds fascinating to me. I might have to pick it up myself because I'm like LGBT themes and... And cannibalism. And and cannibalism. Like, why wouldn't (laughs) I read it, you know? Like, sounds fascinating. Um, Yeah. I appreciate that very much, actually. I try not to look at my reviews, to be honest. That's that's the healthiest thing you can do. I I should do that, but, you know, I don't know. I'm a glutton for punishment. And uh, yeah, in fact, with the first, with that with that book I, I just referenced, um, when it was initially published, the reviews were overwhelmingly positive, and and I was so nervous because it was my first book, so they right. were overwhelmingly positive, and I was like so relieved, and I was like, this is wonderful, this is so great. What was I scared of? This is so easy. Apparently, you just put out a book, and everybody loves it. Why 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 was I worried about this? Uh, and then that first scathing one-star review came in, oh, and boy. oh my goodness, it was just, uh, and of course, just by pure bad luck, I just happened to see it, like, first thing in the morning, so I had this the whole rest of the day. <laughs> to sulk about it, Just to yeah. sulk about it, just, you know, it was getting ready for the day, is crying in the shower, it's like, why did they hate me? What did I do? I just wanted to write a book, and then, um, and then, you know, and, and uh, in retrospect, what I've learned is um and it, it, it's it, it's a double-edged sword and it ultimately is born out of f- good fortune and so my good fortune was my book was doing extremely well um and it was getting a lot of attention and mm. the more attention that it got the the more that the larger scope of readers that decided to give it a try and so and i think we're, someone's gonna hate it absolutely. right yeah and so and then so then more uh uh, and again, you know, uh, overall, the, the reviews, you know, you know the, the, uh, on average, the reviews are very good. And I'm so grateful for that. But mm-hmm. again, the more reviews it gets, the more people that read it, you know, you're going to get the people right. who absolutely hate it. And that first review, I mean, you know, uh, if you're ever bored, you just need some reading material. Go go on Amazon. They basically wrote an essay on Amazon about how much they hated the book. <laughs> Don't you love the essay reviews where it's just like, let me break this down chapter by chapter. Plop, you know? it's like, like, wow, yeah. You, uh, but you, I appreciate, you know, yeah, you know, readers because, like, I am one of those readers being English major. Like, that's how we read books. We don't, yeah. you know, that, but that's also on the other side of the coin. That's how I know when a book is good when I don't super analyze and pick it apart like yes. that when i just get lost in absolutely. it absolutely that's the best and, and that's yeah yeah and i think that's why i love writing urban fantasy because it's that everyday magic it's that idea that you can escape in our ordinary world and find like a new magic world yes you know yeah. i love i love writing that because i'm like that's my, that's my daydream <laughs> is that I'll open, I'll go into a shop one day and it'll be this magical world and yeah. I'll be able to do magic, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I think that's my favorite sort of 
uh, my my favorite sort of uh, you know sliver of fantasy are the stories where, uh, particularly where it exists in a world that that looks contemporary, like ours, like everyday yeah. world. Mm-hmm. But there's yeah. this, there's some sliver of, of magic, you know, and like in the crevices. I I, I love this story, and you know that, that certainly there's plenty of stories where the whole place takes in a in a in a uh, in, in a totally made up fantasy world, and those are great. But I I I, I really love the stories that that, that looks yeah, like yeah, because you can see yourself yes, in them. Yeah, absolutely. you can totally see yourself walking into that story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Those are my favorite. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, Julia, I've very much enjoyed this conversation. You've been tremendously generous with your time. I'm not going to keep you too much longer. Um, okay. Before we wrap up, uh, for, for anybody who's you know interested in, in your new book or any of your other books, but particularly in your new book, Half-Blood Alliance, if they want to learn more about this book, if they want to learn more about you, or maybe if they just specifically would like to reach out to you and, and say hello, uh, you know, what's the best way for people to learn about you and perhaps contact you? Um, sure. So I have a website, hijinkswriter.com, um, and hijinkswriter is also my social media handle. So you can send me a message on Facebook, um, uh, the Hijink Writers page, or um, on my website, you can email me. Um, I have a blog post about the book I'll, uh, with a link um, where you can buy it. You can find it on Amazon, barnesandnobles.com, pretty much everywhere. So. Okay, that's fantastic. Well, again, I, I very much appreciate your time. You're fantastic to talk to. Uh, I sincerely hope this is not the last conversation we have. I would love to do this again sometime down the road. Well, we got to talk about Halloween one time. Yes. So. Oh, we both goodness. love Halloween. Absolutely. So. Yeah, we are both big fans of Halloween. So, yeah, that gives us an excuse to, to do this again. Um, uh, you, uh, J.K. Allen, author of the new book, Half-Blood Alliance, uh, and, and, and even though the, the, the name is J.K. Allen uh, on the cover, uh, I'm allowed to call you my friend, Julia. This yeah. was fantastic. I, I do want to do this again. Thank you so, so much for being on the show. Uh, for those of you who listen and download this episode, uh, both Julia and I, we appreciate you listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And until next time, I will see you on the other side.